Thanks for tuning in to episode 11 of the Between the Lines podcast. This month, IDS researcher Hayley McGregor speaks with Maya Unitan, Professor of Social and Medical Anthropology at the University of Sussex, about her new book, Fertility, Health and Reproductive Politics, Reimagining Rights in India. Drawing on ethnographic research over the past 18 years, Maya brings together the practices, experiences and discourse on fertility and reproduction in northern India into an overarching analytical framework on power and gender politics. Maya, I'm interested to hear how this book came about and what was behind it. Thanks, Haley. Well, the, the book has really kind of grown out of research that started in 1998 and with a number of questions that I had in my mind and my, you know, my thinking back then. So, you know, questions to do with childbearing, conception mm. and contraception, you know, processes, you know, often regarded as so universal and taken for granted but which seemed actually quite challenging in the context of sort of, you know, where I was working in, in Northwest yes, India, yes. Um, in Rajasthan. Yeah, I mean, there, there were questions, you know, such as, you know, mundane, but, you know, what were the experiences mm, of, of, of mm. conception, pregnancy and infertility that, that women and couples had? Um, and, you know, how were these sort of culturally shaped um, and challenged by this, you know, fairly harsh economic and um, environmental conditions in which people lived. Um, and this seemed completely sort of, you know, not taken into account um, of within, um, you know, the, the kind of development policies or the literature that was uh, was coming out on, on family planning and sexual reproductive health. You know, practical questions, for example, how do you how do you manage your menstruation in a context where, you know, you don't have any water to wash um, and, and, you know, and, and issues about, you know, we've been told women don't have, you know, much sort of agency or uh, decision making when it comes to, you know, when to have sex or when when mm. to become pregnant. But was that really the case? And, you know, and how actually do couples in these contexts decide um, you know, about the kinds of contraception that they want to use? You know, uh, do they have these conversations at all? What kinds of conversations are they having about these issues? And and also, how have these conversations changed over yeah, time? So there was always this longitudinal perspective to this work. Yes. I mean, I think that's one of the real kind of, uh, one of the both, uh, you know, one of the, I think the the strengths and things I really, you know, that I really enjoyed, but also one of the challenges of how do you write, you know, over such such a long time. Yes. But but it's within these kinds of conversations that you know I I then became really interested in in conversations about uh, entitlement. entitlement yeah. So that is you know how senses of of sort of reproductive and sexual entitlement and claims of the body, you know, how how are these you know, uh, held, how are they expressed, how are they practiced by women and men from, um, you know, particularly from sort of lower caste and poorer groups, you know, both both Hindu and, and Muslim mm. uh, in Rajasthan. So that's that's really uh, come out, you know, so, so, so this kind of focus on, as it were, reproductive rights has this kind of background yes, in, a, yes. in a, you know, longer and much more on the ground kind of sense of, 
how people were talking about these issues themselves and an interest in in how they were talking and mm. Um, mm. about these issues mm. and that on the ground picture was there not also an interest in linking it to to government to prevailing government yes. and discourse yes yes no no absolutely because this you know what was happening on the ground and you know amongst you know these conversations that people were having in mm. families and you know in households mm. and so um it actually then led to a, a much more kind of i think sort of dense and layered kind of perspective on thinking about the discourse of reproductive rights and this was helped actually by the fact that you know this research uh, also took place at a time when the indian government mm-hmm. and ngos yeah were kind of fervently kind of engaging with with rights based mm-hmm. um approaches to health and development and mm-hmm. you know sexual reproductive mm-hmm. health rights um so this is you know from say 2002 onwards yeah. you know yeah so quite fundamentally there was always this quite anthropological interest in what what was going on on the ground but then also how did this relate to this broader development discourse that was being picked up in government and NGOs so this is sort of interesting as you say very layered yes. um, perspective um, and i think actually the, the the book engages with this broader institutional discourse on rights that was taking place at the same time as you say that it sort of examines these local practices of yes. reproductive entitlement and it engages particularly with this broader discourse in terms of its focus on development actors so you know civil society members mm. members of health ngos and mm. um you know uh, working across sort of rajasthan but also across the country in terms of the network around the people's health movement but also you know health providers and how they were engaged in this kind of rights work and rights talk um and so the book is trying to bring out i'm trying to bring out the kind of different ways in which reproductive rights are kind of you know are, are understood and imagined at these different levels you know by state and civil society mm. on the one hand and then also you know in terms of understandings and perceptions of those who are both subjects and objects of of these state policies and mm. ngo interventions mm. and then you link that quite particularly to power and structures of power don't you absolutely and i think that that the, you know this this focus on power is again you know it's it's a it's a localized um sense of of understanding power so mm. it's it so the book you know uses reproductive rights and these sort of you know the the talk and the practice around body based entitlements as a lens on how power is actually experienced and navigated in, in a, the in everyday a, in an everyday context mm. in, in mm. you know uh, both amongst families and development actors you see yes you know and and in its kind of broadest sense i think the lens of um, reproductive rights is drawn on um really to understand sort of gender politics mm. on the ground mm. and you know also how it plays out in development practice yeah and there's sort of intersections between those two levels yeah. if yeah. you will yeah. yeah yeah as i understand it you also link your ethnographic analysis then to contemporary indian health reform and indeed to global discourse in health um on rights can you just tell us how you do that yes so so um the book it actually starts with two introductory chapters which which cover in a sense both 
these, you know, the overarching sort of concepts and frameworks, methods, and and that's well, that's an introductory chapter. the The second chapter is another introductory chapter, which is on the history of state policies of and how mm. these have changed around mm. um, health uh, in in India, and then and then, you know, the kind of impact that has on how. Uh, health programs organized in in state wise in in Rajasthan. Mm. So look, looking both at the sort of national picture and also, you know what you know what what does that mean when it shifts? Um, how how is it kind of, you know, um, structured at the level of the state, and how does that then f- sort of provide a framing for actually the health system? Yes, and how it yes, works. Yes, um, in in the state and and in a way, you know, these two chapters. Um, I keep returning to these chapters through the ethnography that I set out in in the subsequent chapters in the book, and then towards the end, I actually move uh, more sort of you know more globally in terms of you know in the epilogue, I actually set out some of the implications of of uh, the findings from from the ethnographic mm. chapters, but but mm. look at it in the context of advocacy mm. work at a more global level and also in terms of you know the quest for for evidence by by mm. WHO so I mean, do you bring in some of your own experience there yes I, I you know I, I sort of talk about this in in terms of how I was a member of a, a committee looking into um, you know what constitutes evidence in, yes, in terms of in human WHO. rights basis in, mm. in WHO and mm. I and I reflect on that um, in terms of what I've experienced in Rajasthan and what people have been telling me and and mm. you know and the the mm. amazing kind of insights uh, people have given me into their lives. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, do you reflect on on the degree of receptiveness to that perspective, that kind of evidence? Yes, and and it, it's really interesting because there is a there is a you know there is a receptiveness, but you know it's about knowing. You know, till what to what extent does that mm. does that you know evident and yes. and to what extent yes. can one can one actually use that yes um, to yes. to promote you know um, people's own thinking on the ground and I think one of the really interesting things for me was I felt that I could I could bring this this voice and the story of the people you know people I knew and met in this remote village in Rajasthan right up to the grand yes. portals of, yes, of the WHO. Yes, it's a rather fitting, so it, it a fitting <laughs> end to reflect on those two extremes of, of context. Of context, yeah. 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 Maya, um, moving on, I'm very interested in the title of, of the book. We have Fertility, Health and Reproductive Politics, which you've talked about. And then your subtitle is very interesting, Reimagining Rights in India. And I'd, I'd like to ask why reimagining and not just imagining Mm, okay. Yes. Well, actually, reimagining uh, rights is is that 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 subtitle is actually linked to the core argument that I that I make in the book, um, which is really you know to make a case for a more inclusive approach mm. to reproductive rights, uh, which accounts for sort of diverse senses of entitlement and moral claims on the reproductive body, and really it speaks to the questions. R- really of how and whose rights are to be delivered and in what way, how are they going to be realized? Mm. And and really, this is every time it, you know, it came back to me that the presence of rights upholding kind of institutions and, and laws 
do not in themselves deliver rights. They don't deliver reproductive justice. justice. So the central focus on, on the, that was really the core concern on the ground, wasn't it? Justice. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it is, and you know, as, as, as one of the respondents seeking sort of compensation through the family courts for domestic violence told me, they said, well, you know, rights have arrived, you know, we rights have come, adhikar um, gaya hai, but justice is not. Nyay yes. Has not has yeah. not come, and that really got me thinking about this relationship between rights and justice, justice. which I think mm. is is so important. And it's that link between rights and justice that I think has to be the core focus of development policy and planning. Mm. And 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 I really think, in this sense, you know, this this thinking then on rights based approaches within global health and legal institutions has to be reimagined Imagined. in that kind of context. Yes, no, I, I exactly. I mean, that is such a strong argument in your work that 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 language, that global discourse of rights, doesn't in any way capture these nuanced and sometimes quite different conceptualizations on the ground and and I mean I guess that advocacy work enables you to try and contribute to some of that reimagining at at least at that WHO level but also within India in these different institutions and Yes, indeed, indeed. Which, of course, is is all quite challenging. So I I wanted to to move on and and, um, ask a bit about some of the the challenges. First of all, in the the writing of the book, I imagine there was methodological and and conceptual challenges. And I wondered if there were any you you might choose to reflect upon now that it's published. (laughs) Yes, I think, think, you know, there were two sort of main challenges that I can just think of um, uh, that immediately come to mind. And, you know, one is really about about social change and how do you how do you actually capture it? Mm-hmm. You know, you can write about it, talk about it. But how do you how do you capture capture um, this? And, and I found that, you know, in, in an ethnographic sense, um, and I found actually uh, that being based at a sort of peri-urban uh, site that yes, is, you know, on yeah. the margins of the city, so not quite rural and not quite urban in terms of the families that I was going to speak with, um, where in fact the pace of development is quite quite fast. fast and rapid. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of, you know, in, in, in you know, I've worked around Jaipur city, and there was a uh, a lot of sort of money being made through through agricultural land and other land being sold in these mm. kind of margins to the to the city and so the families living there were becoming really kind of quite wealthy very mm. very fast mm. and so mm. how did that have an impact on on you know thinking yes. about you yes. know entitlements and yes. um and so that that was kind of one thing which actually led to some interesting discoveries which we can yeah, you know so there was a choice of site and then you also had this this period of time this longitudinal approach didn't you i mean did you make some methodological choices there well indeed i think i think these sort of you know um the longitudinal and and the length of you know this this took over like you know 20 years to uh, and, and various bits of field work and I think the the importance of that was really I think um, in terms of another question another challenge which which was there for me which is we talk a lot about intersectionality mm. and as anthropologists we really work in that's that frame. we work in that frame <laughs> but how do you actually do intersectionality and particularly 
you know, intersectionality is not something that exists at one point of time only, that, you know, how different things, you know, impact or come together. But how does intersection, how do you, how can you account for intersectionality over a period of time? And, and in order to, you know, so this, this was a real, real challenge. And I don't know if I, I've managed, you know, to, to really do justice to it. But um, the way I tried to sort of capture some of some of this um, sort of complexity was really through telling the life stories of, of two women mm, mm, um, mm. whose reproductive journey, you know, from sort of motherhood till grandmotherhood, yes. I, was, I was actually a witness, witness to, to, you know. Yeah, so yeah. when I started, when I started the research, you know, they were young mom, you know, they were young and, and moms. I was a young mom. Yes, and um, yes. I have witnessed them, you know, their children now having children. Yes. And um, yes. I'm not there yet. <laughs> They've overtaken you. <laughs> They've overtaken me. Which is interesting so, in its own uh, way. But um, yeah, so so I think that's... Those I think, and I'm so, uh, you know, and really I, I also want to make this point that, that I am very grateful uh, to them, you yes, know, for yes. for enabling me to do this, not only in terms of just a description of their lives and things, but also, I feel, you know, in terms of the way they analyzed what was happening. And I think we, as as ethnographers and as scholars, we never thank the people we work with for for using their analytical models. Yeah, yeah. And I want to thank them for that. You know, yeah. I have, I have of. A lot of this work is really building on, you know, the work of many, many people, many scholars, many medical anthropologists, mm. many feminists. You know, I talk a lot about feminism in the book as well. Um, but, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the analytical models also of, of the people I worked with, yes. you know, have, have to be acknowledged. acknowledged. And and this actually um, is, is, is also linked to some of the, you know, things that are, that emerged uh, as quite quite interesting and different and challenging and how, how I think some of the findings of the book might challenge, um, you know, some standard yeah. kind of yeah, ways of thinking. Yeah. yeah. So finally, maybe you can just summarize for us what, what you see as the main contribution of the book. Why, why does this book matter? Why, why should people read this book? Um, well, if they read it, I hope they do. <laughs> they <laughs> then, should. <laughs> then, um, then, you know, I think some of some of the really interesting things about the book, you know, that 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 are challenged in terms of sort of standard thinking. Uh, you know, firstly, I think sort of you know just just public health ideas around reproductive health. What does this con- you know what is this what does reproductive health as a concept really mm. mean? outside these public health framings and development yeah. policy framings, you know. And and one of the things that really struck me, you know, very strongly in the um, discussion around infertility um, that I had with the women I was working with was that, you know, reproductive health seemed to be regarded very much in terms of ritual purity. Um, uh, that uh. As, as, you know... Rather and than and a biological not, kind of framing of it. That's yeah. right, and and not something that has a medical or physiological. It's not something sort of about med, you know, physiological well-being mm. as such, mm. and and linked to that, therefore, you know, I it, it was not then surprising to find that healers, you know, faith healers, um, rather than public health officials or providers, were the ones who had a sort of greater conceptual hold. Mm. Over how people thought about reproductive yes, health, yes. but also then influenced their 
reproductive health seeking yeah, behavior yeah 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 so i think this so so this is something again this is going back to the issue about you know analytic models yes, and and who's yes. who's analytic models do we do yeah, we prioritize privilege. and privilege yeah, yeah. um i think and i think so that was that was something that i think is would be interesting for people uh, mm. to to read about i think another issue is about you know is about the sort of hidden and implicit maybe biases um within a uh, state health provision mm. um and how these might work and this is particularly around the area of surrogacy you know um yes. how these might work uh, in the form of you know uh, having really good quality care yes it can and does exist in india but it's for particular Yeah. sort of a particular class a wealthier yeah. infertile people whereas poorer infertile women have absolutely no access to this mm. uh there's no thought about you know raising that standard of quality of care yeah you know so so even though we have this value now being placed on women's childbearing in india through these amazing sort of national health mission programs and and uh, you know catering to women's rights uh to their bodies and childbearing etc it does not actually translate into value in terms of healthcare provision, provision on the ground yeah 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 and it's not prioritized in in the same way it's, for poor women it's not yeah. prioritized yeah, yeah yeah that's very interesting and i think this leads me to finally i'd like to ask because i i think one of your key insights is these different understandings of agency and reproductive mm-hmm. agency and i i mean what i've always loved about your work is how those ethnographic accounts the ones you offer really challenge received assumptions about rights and agencies i wondered if finally you can just encapsulate for us what what sort of fresh insights this book brings to reproductive agency well um again you know that it's through the chapters and i and i give many sort of examples of this but i'd yes. just like to use one uh, example and this is this is to do with really with with sex selective abortion um because of course sex selective abortion is has been a major issue in india and it's mm. also reflected in you know the you know the 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 really significant shift in child sex ratio sort of figures and statistics in favor of boys mm. um and rajasthan is one of the key areas where this is happening um there's been you know a lot of state action a lot of mm. feminist sort of um you know solidarity in 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 t- talking about how this leads to gender inequalities and yet i found there was a very different kind of response to it in the kind of communities i was working yes. with both interestingly in the health provider communities and in you know the families and 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 that that i was sort of doing and the, and here i found that women actually sought out sex selective services themselves they were not sort of coerced they were doing this they were doing this with different reproductive futures in mind with an those agency. of their <laughs> with an agency yeah. those of their daughters yes. you know they wanted yes. to prevent them from uh actually even just being born and being subject to discrimination and it was this kind of language and also you know that that then health providers used that provided these services mm. it was actually the language of rights yes. that is yes. you know you uh, we are supporting the rights of women who want to have sex selection abortions have yeah. sex and and prevent yeah. their daughters from facing discrimination you yeah. know and and yeah. so so these these kinds of ideas really led have led me to reevaluate notions of you know standard notions of reproductive agency yes yes um so that's just sort of 
I think, one example. And that has relevance really far beyond India. So this is really where the book starts to contribute in a very substantial way to to anthropology more more broadly. Yes, uh, anthropology more broadly, but, you know, and and also there's a lot being done, especially now we're living in a moment of, um, you know, and the need to refocus on abortion, given the kind of neoliberal times that yes, we are living in, yes. and um, one of the things, one one of the, um, I, I really want to uh, sort of make this point in the book that sex selective abortion also has to be seen in terms of approaches and ideas of abortion more generally. Yes, yes, and that abortion on its own can't be looked at without a sense of understanding people's ideas on contraception yes, and, and, yes. and other issues. So so we cannot have a siloed approach to these, yeah, to these issues. One, one and discourse on abortion that fits everywhere. That, that fits everywhere. So yeah, I think, you know, yeah. this, this is... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is a substantial contribution and I think really the book shows how these anthropological perspectives then really can contribute to, to theory but also to reframing global health policy and, and discourse at that level. Um, and I think really your work there and, and shifting ideas about what kind of evidence counts is a really interesting contribution also beyond these fascinating ethnographic accounts of how these, these concepts are, are understood differently. So thank you so much for but, describing them. But thank us. you. Thank you so much for, for this uh, wonderful opportunity, uh, you know, t- um, to speak about the book. And I'd also like to thank John Gaventer for kindly inviting me and, and to Sarah for organizing it so well. So thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published the first Wednesday of every month. It's brought to you by the Institute of Development and Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.